Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hello there, history friends. Before we get settled into this latest episode of 17th Century Warfare, looking at the Battle of Breidenfeld, hope you're looking forward to that, I just wanted to make you aware that the special offer for When Diplomacy Fails expires in a week. So if you want to get your name listed in the acknowledgements of our 30 Years War book, make sure you head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and sign up to become a PhD pal today. In return, you will of course get that book signed and delivered to your door when it is available. And you'll also get access to all the other things that $5 patrons, $2 patrons, $1 patrons, etc. get access to. I have been told it's almost overwhelming the amount of extra audio content you suddenly get access to when you sign up on Patreon, mostly because there's such a large back catalogue of stuff there that you won't get anywhere else. Everything from Louis XIV's Arms and Armies, which is similar in many ways to this series here, except it's looking at Louis rather than 30 Years War, early 17th century kinds of things. Then you've got the Jan Sobieski biography series, which is available to $2 patrons and above. And then you've got 1956, which is a series we did over the last year and a half or so, which looks at several different events that took place in that very eventful year, including the Suez Crisis. More recently, of course, we've started Poland is Not Yet Lost, so make sure you check that out as well if you want to learn about what Poland was doing not particularly well and not particularly easily in the 18th century. To sign up and become a PhD pal, it costs $12 a month, but you will soon discover that that is worth it, because there is so much to be had just with all that extra content alone, and in the future as well, because once you get your name safely enshrined in that book, you'll also, shortly thereafter, be able to chow down on extra content that you won't get anywhere else, such as Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails. Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails is a deep dive kind of series, kind of style. I haven't done any of them yet, so you haven't missed anything, and I won't be doing this episode until the end of April 2020. So you've got a long time to think about whether or not that is for you. But if you want to get your name in the book, then you don't have all that long to decide. You only have till the end of this month, that is October 2019, so make sure you get on that. Yes, someone seems to be drilling in the background, so... That's what that noise is. I need a studio, or at least, perhaps, quieter neighbours. In any case, let's get right into this history, friends. Thanks so much for supporting me and listening to this podcast, and for tuning in and for taking part in this special offer that took place over the month of October. And I can't wait to see where When Diplomacy Fails goes next. (laughs) 
Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 11 of our 17th century warfare series. Last time, Gustavus's incredible innovations in warfare and tactics were underlined, as the Swedish king surged forward with new ideas and theories to squeeze as much as he could out of his artillery, cavalry and infantry. During the 1620s especially, and with his wars against Poland, Gustavus began to inculcate the lessons and ideas which had been floating around Europe for some time. He took the best parts of Maurice of Nassau's countermarch and determined that the infantry could serve its purpose best by laying down as much fire as possible. To that end, he advocated a new fire-by-rank drill. He made the firearm lighter, perhaps adding in cartridges at the same time, depending on whom you asked. But as he reimagined the infantry, he revolutionised the artillery. He attached small artillery pieces to his infantry companies and provided his soldiers with the opportunity to taste the 17th century's first iteration of combined arms. It was this army, with its new way of waging war, its versatility and its experience, that Gustavus moved through Germany with. Until finally, in September 1631, a proper confrontation with Count Tilly's Imperial Army was possible. Now, we will be visiting this battle again in our proper narrative series, many years into the future, but as it remains arguably the most important battle of the war, and certainly one of the most popular, I felt it only right to include it within our 17th century warfare series. You can think of it as Gustavus's Battle of Newport, in other words, the ultimate test of his ideas, which Maurice of Nassau also had to endure, but also a test of those ideas generally, because once this triumph was made known here, spoiler alert, he wins this battle in case you didn't know, other more adaptive commanders on both sides felt moved to pick and choose the best of what Gustavus had done. In such a way did the Swedish king change 17th century warfare then. We begin our story with some background. The political background and ramifications of this battle will be covered in the main narrative series, but I believe it's worth taking some time to look at those Polish campaigns, which we mentioned several times, to give us a flavour of the Swedish king to come. With that said, I'll now take you to the late 1620s. The Armed Host which Gustavus confronted on the morning of the 17th of September 1631, was the proud, powerful and undefeated military arm of a Habsburg supremacy which the Swedish king had had his eye on throughout the 1620s. He had been repeatedly urged during that eventful decade to intervene in Germany to make some commitment or declaration to the effect that he would support the Protestant powers in their quest against the emperor. While he was certainly sympathetic to the plight of the rebels, Gustavus's attention was pulled towards more immediate concerns. His cousin Sigismund, who happened to be Catholic, the King of Poland and his mortal enemy, continued to claim the Swedish throne after being evicted from it in the final years of the 16th century. Since then, Sweden and Poland had waged a 30 years war all of their own, interspersed with truces and temporary arrangements, which would give both sides the opportunity to breathe and recover before the campaigning season began again. Just as Gustavus had been urged to save Protestantism, so too had the King of Poland been urged by the Emperor to aid the Habsburg cause. King Sigismund, after all, was a Jesuit-educated Catholic, and, more importantly, 
he was the brother-in-law of the emperor. Thus, while the theatre of Gustavus's Polish wars had remained distinct from the German war through much of the early 1620s, from 1627, as his siege of the critical port city of Danzig or Gdansk began, the two theatres, that being the German and the Polish, began to bleed into one another. We might imagine that Gustavus would be happy to see another old enemy, the Danes, suffer catastrophe in their efforts to defeat the Habsburgs. But Gustavus correctly perceived that Habsburg pretensions would not stop at Denmark. After Denmark was totally overrun, the Emperor's Generalissimo Albrecht Wallenstein had been granted the grand title Admiral of the Baltic and Ocean Seas and made plans to coordinate with Poles and Spaniards to choke Denmark and inevitably Sweden thereafter from its Baltic lifeline. There was more to Wallenstein's lofty title than mere ceremony. He had already sent 12,000 men to reinforce the Polish king at Danzig, a force which proved essential as Gustavus was defeated outside that city in June 1629, and according to one account, was lucky to escape with his life. Wounded first in the hip and then the shoulder shortly afterwards, Gustavus displayed a disconcerting penchant for placing himself in the firing line, but he would not learn his lesson. Danzig was plainly a lost cause, but Gustavus took two things from the whole experience, which dominated the Polish-Swedish War of the late 1620s. First of all, he learned a valuable lesson about the strengths and weaknesses of port cities, lessons which he was shortly to put to great use at Stralsund, one of the last holdouts against Wallenstein's relentless advance through Germany's northern reaches. Second, and in line with this, Gustavus accepted by 1629 that remaining aloof from Germany and ignoring the threat which Wallenstein's swollen army posed to Sweden was impossible. Within months, he had forced the issue with Poland, defeating Sigismund's forces and noting with satisfaction that his cavalry had distinguished themselves as very near the equal of the famous Poles. After so many years avoiding a direct cavalry challenge with the superior Poles, though, Gustavus had also learned the importance of a well-oiled machine in infantry. His infantry had proved their worth against all manner of enemies, and Gustavus rewarded them by investing heavily in their equipment and reinventing their tactics several times until he reached the aforementioned conclusions about the best formula for harnessing the power of the foot with the fire-by-rank technique. Gustavus's new instructions for the infantry were to reduce their depth of rank to three or six men deep so that his line was longer, but more muskets could be fired in a single salvo. Further, gaps in the ranks were left so that men had space to reload or retire, and if they did so, they did not disrupt the formation. Shots were fired according to the orders of the officer within the company, and these orders included the now famous arrangement where Gustavus's foot would shoot in three ranks, standing, stooped and kneeling, with the men also trained to shoot while lying down. The major goal with these innovations was to lay down as much fire as possible upon the enemy. Polish infantry was a lesser concern of the Polish king and of the Polish nobility in general, mostly because the nobility preferred to fight on horseback and break their enemies with a glorious charge. In that respect, the Polish nobility were far from alone. Poland's love of the horse compelled Gustavus to train his men because 
A better disciplined infantry must be given the means to develop a fire so hot that even if our cavalry were defeated, musketeers and pikemen together would be able to escape annihilation. By leading his men through such trying campaigns, and by teaching them to withstand the fiercest mounted enemies, Gustavus ensured his infantry had endured a baptism by fire unequalled in Europe. They were trained, essentially, to cut cavalry to pieces. But since shot did not discriminate, Gustavus rightly believed that these tactics would ruin enemy infantry as well as cavalry. As Michael Roberts appreciated, The 1620s, therefore, saw developments along three lines, the intensification of firepower, the combination of arms, and the improvement of cavalry. When compared to the imperial Spanish tactics on the same period, the contrast is palpable. Count Tilly's men were placed up to ten ranks deep, which instantly made it more difficult for all the firepower of the thousand or so musketeers to match those of Gustavus. From the moment the battle was joined, it would seem as though Gustavus had far more musketeers than he in fact did, though it certainly helped that Gustavus's army of 42,000 men outnumbered Tilly's by about 7,000, although an infamous incident within that battle had it that 16,000 of Gustavus's army was composed of Saxons. These men were reluctant recruits, and they'd only joined the fray recently on Sweden's side, and they could not be wholly depended upon. Certainly, Gustavus was wise not to rely on the Saxons. He had set up contingency plans to plug any gaps they might leave, and it was a good thing he had, because they fled the field before the battle was done, thereby removing 16,000 men from Gustavus's ledger and changing the balance of power in numbers. Thankfully, due to his innovations, the difference wasn't really noticed. Gustavus had been able to create an illusion of all men firing at once, and this was what won the day more than his temporary numerical superiority. Whereas Tilly's men shot their weapons piecemeal, or according to the traditional tertio drill, Gustavus's men fired in devastating coordinated blocks which shattered the enemy's morale and order. The contrast between the two styles could not have been starker, as Gustavus's infantry operated from a rulebook written in the blood of their Polish campaigns. Years of campaigning had also taught Gustavus the importance of a recognisable, respectable uniform, as he noted, Since many will judge contemptuously of the infantry for its clothes' sake, and since thereafter derogatory words may be disseminated in foreign countries concerning the whole army, in the king and country's despite, therefore shall newly conscripted foot soldiers be enjoined to provide themselves with proper clothes, instead of their long smocks and peasant attire, wherewith less consideration ought to be had of the material itself, than that the clothes shall be well made. Alas, while much work was done in the sphere of giving the soldiers uniforms, the soldiers themselves generally wore uniforms only during parade or inspection, and in any event, by September 1631, the army had been marching around Germany for over a year. As an army marched, issues of supply were paramount, and at the very bottom of those supply requests would have been new uniforms. Whatever shiny uniforms the Swedes had arrived with originally then, they would be scarcely recognisable nearly a year and a half later. It was hardly surprising that comments were made on the appearance of the Swedish soldiers by September 1631, who 
having lain overnight on a parcel of ploughed ground, were so dusty they looked out like kitchen servants with their uncleanly rags. They did not present a pretty picture. Their freshly faced and freshly gathered Saxon allies, on the other hand, were well-clothed, showing robust forms and fresh cheeks with well-fed horses. Even Count Tilly's imperial army showed the Swedes up in this regard, as Theodore Dodge recorded. In contrast to the rough and rusty Swedes, Count Tilly commanded a splendid-looking set of veterans. His army numbered men who had followed him for years, and knew that he had never yet been conquered in battle. Prominent among these were his Walloons, at the head of whom he took his stand on his white battle charger, which was known to every man in the line. As the rugged old veteran of 72 passed along, shouts of Father Tilly rang from battalion to battalion. There was no feeling of uncertainty in the Imperial Army. That full-throated cheer presaged success. It would have been an intimidating sight for his men, veterans though they were by this point, to see Count Tilly's confident and experienced army lining up on the other side of the valley. But Gustavus knew that even with the unreliable Saxons on his side, the major contrast between his army and Tilly's was not its appearance, but its approach to warfare. The experiences of Poland had not been wholly enjoyable, as Gustavus had been wounded several times, lost many men, and suffered some bitter defeats. But they had taught the Swedish king how to thrive in adversity, and to learn from his mistakes. Tilly, on the other hand, had never lost a battle, and did not expect to start now. Yet if the veteran commander of the emperor's men had been able to investigate his foe at close range, he would have been able to discern major differences between even the layout of his forces and those of the Swedish king, as Dodge continued in his analysis. Under Gustavus, the three arms supported each other much in the modern way. Herein consisted the value of the king's method. His army became a well-designed machine, with all parts operating smoothly, instead of a disjointed mass whose several parts worked out of time and failed at the critical moment to sustain one another. Gustavus had studied the Tertio, and determined that the squadron, consisting of four companies of 150 men each, was too small to stand up to it. Thus, three or sometimes four squadrons were combined into a regiment, which created independent blocks of up to 2,000 men. Don't worry too much about the numbers here. All that you really need to know is that these were designed to be a numerical match for Tilly's Tertios. But in terms of firepower, Gustavus's foot had no equal. Not only had they been thoroughly versed in the new fire-by-rank mechanics, but they also had, thanks to recent artillery reforms, as many as 12 regiment pieces per regiment, all of which were now capable of firing a three-pound ball deep into the mass of the enemy at devastatingly close range. Tilly's artillery, by contrast, were hulking pieces requiring more than 30 horses to shift, and they were all positioned to the rear or the front of the line in the beginning cannonades. Whereas, even in the heat of the battle, Gustavus's line bore witness to scenes of constantly moving guns, which could be brought to bear so long as three men or a strong horse could be found to drag these 650-pound regiment pieces. We will recall that the goal in bringing this firepower to bear was not merely to decimate the enemy, but also to soften up his ranks for the other forgotten innovation of Gustavus's, the offensive charge by the pike. 
Gustavus's respect for the pike is palpable in the composition of his companies. More than a third of the 150 men brandished pikes, which meant that the unit retained its defensive strength. Useful when you're fighting Polish cavalry, of course. Unlike Tilly, whose tertios suffered from decreased mobility and reduced fire rates due to their arrangement, Gustavus's companies were prepared for the cavalry charge and enemy firepower, operating in many respects like a more flexible version of the tertio, with a focus on firepower and offensive tactics. Gustavus's regiment, wrote Michael Roberts, represented a combination of some of the advantages of both the Dutch and Spanish schools. Thus, even if he had been unaware of his rival's reforms, the opening cannonade which announced that the Battle of Breitenfeld had begun would have told Count Tilly that something was very different indeed about the way the Swedish king intended to fight. The sheer volume of firepower which Gustavus's men could bring to bear was nothing short of a revelation, and Tilly's men had no answer for it. The pressure of the initial cannonade actually moved Tilly's left flank to attack at around noon. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Noon on the 17th of September, and in such a haphazard manner, was this famous battle opened. By now, several hundreds of casualties would have been incurred on both sides, with Tilly surely having the worst of it, and the noise would have been as unsettling as the smell and sights at hand. Nor would this assault on the senses have been enjoyable to the winning side. As Robert Monroe, a Scottish officer in Gustavus's service, noted on the battle, The smoke being great, the dust being raised, we are as in a dark cloud, not seeing the half of our actions, much less discerning either the way of our enemies or the rest of our brigades. We should not imagine a close quarters skirmish then, but a wide battlefield near the village of Breitenfeld, stretching across the plain of that village, 
with each army spreading their own lines over a mile across. A long, winding river flowed to the rear and up to the right of the Swedish line, while Tilly had Leipzig at his back and the town of Breitenfeld in his sights. It was a large space that they were both based on, but this was only to be expected considering the vast numbers each side had at hand. As we established, Gustavus commanded a manpower advantage over Tilly of 42,000 men to Tilly's 36,000. But as we also said, the Swedish king was perceptive enough not to rely too heavily on those 16,000 Saxons who gave him such a numerical advantage, but who had only recently joined his side thanks to the reluctant defection by the Saxon elector. Sure enough, the raw Saxon recruits, having had none of the experience of their Swedish allies of the last few years, routed at the height of the battle. In any other battlefield situation, we would imagine that the exit of more than a third of one's force would have been the beginning of the end, and perhaps Tilly imagined that by routing the Saxons, and by aiming at the Saxons in the first place, he could doom Gustavus's war effort before it ever really got off the ground. But to Gustavus, by shedding himself of the Saxon appendage, he was now given the chance to demonstrate to his adversary exactly what his army was made of. Gustavus had ridden across his battle lines earlier in the morning, and we are told that he gave speeches to his men, which are recorded later in the series. Thanks to the wound he had received in his shoulder when warring in Poland, he didn't actually wear any armour, and he preferred instead to wear a more streamlined riding coat and a hat with a green feather. Demonstrating the fearlessness which had been on full display in Poland, Gustavus by no means planned to sit to the rear of his battle order where he could direct traffic, like perhaps some Napoleon would be imagined to do. From the beginning, the king was in the thick of the fighting, directly leading cavalry charges and rallying his troops. There was no need for any kind of single conductor for the Swedish forces though, because the men were well trained and experienced enough to know their roles and follow the instructions of their individual generals, who were attached to the regiments and squadrons of cavalry, and whose names would, in their own right, become famous later on in the Thirty Years' War. In any case, though, the Swedish king had ensured that his battle line was sound in the planning stages, and he trusted his men to follow the orders of their superiors. In a sense, then, it would be incorrect to imagine Gustavus commanding all the time in the front line, just as it would be incorrect to imagine him directing all the movements of the army from a perch far away from the dangers of battle. Instead, it would be more correct to imagine Gustavus having established already a blueprint which his subordinates could follow, and he involved himself where he was needed. To appreciate both the nature of the battle and Gustavus's victory at Breitenfeld, it helps to compare how the two armies were arranged. As we said, the Swedish king's battle line was spread over a mile, and it consisted of two lines, with a reserve for each line. Gustavus commanded the right and the centre, while the Saxons held the left. In preparation for the uncertainties of battle, Gustavus had learned to keep men at hand in the event of a disaster a decision which would effectively save the battle, as we will see. In the centre of his first line were four regiments of roughly 2,000 men apiece, with each regiment boasting its own general for coordination of the men, who stood at six ranks deep, and several regiment pieces were also on hand to establish a quick, blistering superiority of fire over the enemy. 
The reserve of the centre in the first line consisted of cavalry, and spaces were provided in between each of the regiments to permit these horses through. 4,100 horse waited for orders on the right flank, and as he had learned to do in previous battles, Gustavus interspersed his cavalry with some 1,200 musketeers. At the front of his impressive line was the main battery, putting it in front of his soldiers so that his heavier guns could get the best shot. Within this heavy battery was 12 of his heavy field guns, likely also of the 12-pounder variety, since the heavier variety of 36-pounders and even 48-pounders had mostly been abandoned on the battlefield, simply because they were so difficult to move around. Gustavus's second line looked very similar to his first, but he had three regiments there rather than four. He retained the cavalry interspersed with musketeers, and the smaller but still significant reserve of cavalry and musketeers behind the main line. The second line was thus slightly smaller, and it possessed no heavy guns at its centre, but the regiments retained their regiment pieces, and they were able to move them around as the demands of the battle provided. The Swedish king possessed close to 13,000 foot, arranged into regiments in his centre, and a few thousand other musketeers were dotted along the line, supporting cavalry, defending artillery, or preparing to march and plug any gaps which might appear. Gustavus had in fact been concerned not necessarily about his musketeers, but about a chronic shortage of pikes that he had. So a few regiments, such as the 2,000 Scottish under the command of James Ramsay, which stood in the reserve of the First Lion's Centre, contained no pikes at all, but they were protected by cavalry. So having looked at Gustavus's line, it's time to look at Tilly's. But there is some uncertainty over what kind of battle order Tilly had, and consequently what kind of opponent or formation Gustavus faced, owing to something of a controversy surrounding the imperial line. Some historians maintain that Count Tilly commanded two lines, but there is greater evidence that he had only a single line, with a reserve behind that first line designed to capitalise upon the flanking manoeuvre which he planned to utilise, and which had served him to such devastating effect ten years before the Battle of the White Mountain. And flanking would surely be easy, since Tilly possessed an intimidating four groups of three tertios, which contained between 1,500 to 12,000 men apiece, adding up to a centre of 24,000 men at a maximum, but probably closer to 1,800 if his tertios were of the lower amount of men. Whatever the precise number, Tilly's use of a single line meant that his army could reach further across the horizon than the Swedes, making a flanking manoeuvre seem tantalisingly possible to the aged Habsburg veteran. Tilly placed his cavalry in similar masses of about 1,000 men, 10 ranks deep on the flanks. Tilly's guns were all concentrated in the middle of the battle line, but would be at a distinct disadvantage once his men needed to move ahead of their cannons, as often happened in a battle. This lack of heavy guns and a lack of coordination among the Tertios would cost Tilly dearly. As Michael Roberts noted, The Swedish battle order, indeed, appeared as something quite different from anything that had been seen on a German battlefield before, and it was no wonder that the Saxon allies viewed it with undisguised astonishment. The attack was begun by a man named Pappenheim, an impetuous and impatient cavalry commander, 
who took charge of 5,000 horse on Tilly's left flank to charge at Gustavus's right. This was a fatal mistake though, because musketeers were in wait, knitted as they were in among the cavalry, commanded by another man you might recognise, called Johan Banner, later to become a distinguished Swedish commander in his own right. Banner demonstrated a resilience and brilliance which boded well for Sweden's future, as he resisted seven charges, that's right, seven charges from Pappenheim's men before the latter were forced to withdraw, with Banner in hot pursuit. The positioning of musketeers within the cavalry had proved the difference, because they cut the cavalry to pieces from a distance, and they completely blunted any sense of panic which Pappenheim may have hoped to inflict. So it was a reassuring start to the battle, but a mile over to the other side of Gustavus's line, the disaster which all had feared was coming to pass, as Saxony's raw recruits were unnerved and scattered by a similar cavalry attack. Within half an hour, Gustavus's left flank had been completely exposed by this rout, and Count Tilly, who had watched in extreme irritation as his hot-headed cavalry commanders had charged ahead without his blessing, now attempted to reassert his authority directly by commanding an envelopment of the area where Imperials outnumbered Gustavus's men more than three to two. This was the real moment of truth for the Swedish king and his soldiers and for the battlefield in general. With this terrible event having come to pass, the question of how Gustavus and his men would react next meant everything. Fortunately for Gustavus, and as we have seen, he had a second battle line which was prepared behind his first and the exit of the Saxons was rectified almost immediately by pulling forward a distinguished brigade of 2,000 Scottish musketeers and an equal number of cavalry, who more than adequately plugged the gap which the hasty Saxon elector had left. On another critical point in the battle, a detachment of Scottish infantry and cavalry under Colonel Robert Monroe captured Count Tilly's artillery, effectively dooming the already beleaguered Imperial force Monroe would later claim that this act won the battle for the Swedish king, and that the latter was not afraid to confess as such. According to Robert Monroe, The victory and the credit of the day as being in last engaged was ascribed to our brigade, who, being the reserve, were thanked by His Majesty for their service in public audience and in view of the whole army. We were promised to be rewarded. For these reasons, one historian has noted that Although the king showed skill in reacting to the sudden changes in battle plan, he was entirely dependent on these Scottish troops for the successful outcome of his orders. This was, of course, true, and any Scottish listeners tuning in right now, I hope you feel a swell of pride that it was because of your ancestors that Sweden's famous king emerged triumphant. But let's not forget, these same Scottish troops were similar to their German and Swedish counterparts because they had been thoroughly trained and drilled by Gustavus, and they proved so devastating because they functioned as part of a well-oiled machine which the Swedish king had created. Now this is not to claim that the victory was entirely down to Gustavus. He of course depended upon his subordinates to harness the best of their men and to take advantage of the situation, and the average foot soldier would have faced terrifying scenes of slaughter and carnage, regardless of what side he was on. 17th century warfare had progressed markedly in technology and innovation, but at the end of the day, 
warfare still required the soldier to engage in the same haunting and bloody business as their ancestors. The fast-moving Scottish had been complemented by the actions of one Gustav Horn, another distinguished Swede who commanded a reserve of horse to block the imperial approach. Gustavus's commanders were able to predict the attempted flanking manoeuvre, not just because they had learned of the Saxon exit, but also because they could see Count Tilly wheeling his tertios in the centre in an attempt to capitalise. Still, in front of the Swedish centre, Leonard Torstenson, the final in a trio of quality Swedish commanders, and soon to be the nemesis of Denmark, continued to instruct the heavy batteries to lay down murderous fire on the Imperial Army, which only increased the pressure upon Tilly to move and act. Tilly's flanking act was too predictable though, and as Horn's cavalry, supported by musketeers, managed to push the attack back, it was the Imperial line that was now exposed. Seeing their heavy investment peter out in the face of a barrage of musket balls, Gustavus arranged his right flank, which had earlier absorbed the charge from Pappenheim, to now countercharge. As they did this, the horse under the command of Johann Banner aimed for the exposed imperial batteries which were to the rear. They fell upon these with a cold-blooded charge, striking the imperial gunners down where they stood, and crucially commandeering the weapons for themselves. Tilly's position was now dire. His men faced into the teeth of Swedish regiments who continued to pour down an unheard of volume of fire in musket and light guns into his ranks. His cavalry wings had either been routed or pulled away and now on his rear the artillery had fallen into enemy hands. When the formerly imperial guns began to ignite and then inflict horrific wounds upon his twelve remaining tertios Tilly knew that the battle was lost for the first time in his life. Indeed, it had been lost from the moment he had arrived, thanks to the disparity in firepower alone. As one English observer of the battle described the new Swedish method of fire by rank, You pour as much lead into your enemy's bosom at one time as you do the other way at two or six several times and thereby you do them more mischief, and astonish them three times more, for one long and continued crack of thunder is more terrible and dreadful to mortals than ten interrupted and several ones. Indeed, the combination of relentless small-arms fire with field guns had proved the difference. Bodies of men were left obliterated on the battlefield, and those that survived could sport horrific wounds. The casualty figures are as wide-ranging as the figures provided for the size and composition of the two armies, but there is no doubt that the imperial losses were horrendous. Tilly seems to have suffered as many as 7,500 killed or wounded, and 6,000 prisoners, whereas Gustavus may have lost as few as 2,000 men. The loss was compounded by Gustavus's ability to absorb many of these prisoners into his ranks, especially when they tended to be Germans of a Protestant inclination, and this only swelled his numbers even further to the detriment of the aged and now wounded Imperial commander. Yet Breitenfeld was more than just the story of a great victory, and it was more still than the triumph of new military tactics against tried and tested methods. So significant was the victory, in fact, that Gustavus Adolphus can be credited with ending on an afternoon the Habsburg supremacy 
which had characterised the first half of the Thirty Years' War. Never again would the Emperor's position be so unassailable or free from threat as it had been during the glory days of the mid to late 1620s. The Swedish king had fired his first bullet into the heart of the Habsburg Colossus, and in the process he laid the foundation stone of the Swedish Empire. This was realised by Johann Salvius, a Swedish chronicler and statesman, later to take a leading role in the Swedish negotiations at the Congress of Westphalia. He noted in the aftermath of Breitenfeld that Ragged, tattered and dirty were our men besides the glittering, gilded and plume-decked imperialists. Our Swedish and Finnish nags looked but puny next to their great German chargers. Our peasant lads made no brave show upon the field when set against the hawk-nosed and mustachioed veterans of Tilly. Yet they were mindful how that, with victories continual, they had made near the whole circuit of the Baltic Sea, driven the Muscovite into the innermost deeps of Sarmatia, and to the Polack prescribed laws. And as for all the same Cullians, whom they are now to meet in open field, had they not bundled them out already, not from one or two, but from all the strong places that were in Rugen, Pomerania, the most of Mecklenburg, and the whole mark of Brandenburg? Wherefore they had the less reason to think twice about oppugning them now, when they had no wall to their defence, but were girt only by a little breastplate of iron about their bodies. And thereupon they fell to, and basted the enemy's hide so briskly, that at last he had no choice but to yield. Indeed, the enemy's hide, the emperor's men, had been basted, and they had no choice but to yield to the Swedish king, having reached the pinnacle of innovation, and harnessed the very best which tactical and technical innovations had to offer him. Gustavus Adolphus had passed his first great test. In this murderous laboratory, at the virtual halfway point of the Thirty Years' War, a watershed moment had been passed in 17th century warfare. So that's the episode for today, my lovely history friends and patrons. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me in two weeks' time. Just as a final reminder, don't forget October is the last chance for you to sign up as a PhD pal and be listed as a contributor to the 30 Years War book and the acknowledgements. So if you want your name and lights, you only have a week left to do so. Make sure to go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. And don't worry, as soon as October is over, I'll shut up about this special offer. And I may even stop mentioning PhD pals for a while. But you are my pals. You are wonderful for contributing And you are equally wonderful for listening. So thanks very much for joining me over the last 40 minutes or so. And I hope to see you all in two weeks time. Happy birthday to me in a week's time as well. My name is Zach. This has been 17th Century Warfare episode 11. And I'll be seeing you all soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.